The reading this morning is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 4, and beginning at verse 4. So John 4, beginning at verse 4. Now Jesus had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you give me this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, and did also his sons and his flock and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. And Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said to him, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know, We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time time is coming and has now come when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for they are the kind of worshippers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshippers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 2010... Uh, the United Nations recognized, quote, the right to safe and clean drinking water and sanitation as a human right that is essential for the full enjoyment of life, 
and all other human rights. They identify that water is a basic human right, and I take it it's a basic human right because it is a basic human need. Uh, Water is the molecule of life. Uh, Water brings life. Barren places burst into bloom after the rains. Fruits swell, and seemingly dead places spring to life. One of the things I would imagine that many of us will do directly after this service is they will put those daffodils in water, precisely because we know that they will not live long out of water. As physical creatures, we thirst for water because it is essential for the life of our cells. But the Bible teaches, of course, that we are more than 65 kilograms of cells. We are more than the chemical reactions that our cells contain. Water sustains us mechanically, but I think many of us would resonate with the truth that we actually thirst for more than water because we were made for more than that. We thirst for identity, we thirst for meaning, we thirst for purpose, we thirst for relationship, and so on. And the Bible says we have this thirst because fundamentally we were made by God and we were made for God. We were made for the relationship that he offers. We were made for the identity that he gives. We were made for the purpose that he calls us to. We were made for the power that he provides. In the Old Testament, uh, God often uses this lovely little expression. He describes himself as the spring of living water. The spring of living water. In other words, he is that which causes us to flourish in fruitfulness. He is, he himself is that which satisfies our deepest needs and longings and desires. And yet the Bible says, and yet by nature so often we seek to quench our thirst, we seek to uh, look for life in the salt water of created things rather than the living water of our Creator. It is, the Bible says, the nature of people to turn their back on the living water that God provides and to seek to build, to use a lovely picture that the prophet Jeremiah uses, to build our own wells, to try and become, in other words, self-sufficient, self-satisfying, to construct our own identities and meaning and lives. But we do so on the fragile foundations of created things. And so often we're left thirsty, I think particularly in the heat of life and in the droughts of life. So often we find ourselves disappointed with what created things provide and damaged by the pursuit. I think we see something of this played out in the life of the woman that Jesus meets intentionally at a well. We don't have time this morning to go into the details, but it's pretty clear that this is a thirsty woman. And she's thirsty for more than water. It seems, as you read the story, and you must go and read it afterwards, but it seems as if she's been looking for life, meaning, identity, self-worth, satisfaction, however you want to put it, in her human relationships. It seems in particular that she has sort of thrown herself into a life of um, 
possibly, probably from the Greek sinful relationships. And like all who search for ultimate things, for what only the Creator can provide in earthly things, she finds herself still desperately dissatisfied. She is still thirsty, to use the language of John 4. One of the ways that we can see that she's been engaged in this um, is, is the fact that she's so socially excluded. Did you get that from the reading? It was a bit tricky, but she's at the well on her own at noon, which is not the way people drew water back then. It tend to be the women from the village would go to the well in the morning when it was still cool, and they'd go as a group. She's on her own, and she's there in the midday sun. In other words, she's there because she's been socially excluded by the village. She's there battling shame that is both socially driven, but also, I think, you see from her reaction to Jesus, a shame which she fills within as well. She finds herself, in other words, alone. And she finds herself desperately thirsty. But she is not alone for long. Jesus meets her, and he asks her for a drink. Now, given their respective backgrounds, she is staggered, did you notice, by his approach in verse 9, and she queries his, uh, his request, to which Jesus replies, uh, have a look if you've got it in front of you, verse 10, wonderful verse. He says, look, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. As uh, James said, we're in a series uh, at the moment uh, through Lent in which we're rediscovering afresh the extraordinariness of this man, Jesus Christ. And I want us simply to pause this morning and just be struck again by what Jesus is saying here about himself and about what he offers. In fact, what he is saying about himself and what he offers goes hand in hand, as we'll see. And the first thing that he's saying is, he is saying, is he not, that he is the source of living water. He's saying, I am the source of living water. Now, friends, that can only mean one thing to the people listening at the time. In this case, this woman, in a couple of chapters' time in John, he's going to make this offer of living water public. He's going to say it to a whole crowd. And the only thing in the context of their time and culture and the Old Testament that they could have heard when Jesus said, I am the source of living water, is, I am God. You'll often hear people say, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God, which is utter nonsense. He claimed to be God in hundreds of different ways, at hundreds of different times during his ministry. And he said it, though, in a way that could be understood by the people around him and the time and culture he was in. When he said, I am the source of living water, Everybody who knew their Old Testament would have heard him to be saying, I am God, because God is the source of living water in the Old Testament. The woman, therefore, is understandably bewildered by what Jesus is saying and what Jesus is offering, so much so that she assumes he's saying that he is greater than Jacob, who first built that well, and that somehow he has a better bucket and is able to somehow reach deeper into this world. I mean, she can't quite fathom what it is that he's saying. So bewildering uh, is what he is saying. And then verse 13, Jesus steps in and says, no, it's not about the well. It's not that I can build a, a, a bigger well. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. 
Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, no, I'm not talking about water from the well. I've not come just to build more wells. You don't, in a sense, need more water. I'm offering you something greater. Drink this water, you'll be thirsty again. But I can provide the kind of water which will satisfy your fundamental thirst forever. Indeed, I can turn you into a spring of water. Water, like all created things, will satisfy you for a bit, but it won't satisfy you for long. You'll soon be thirsty again. I'm offering you a water that always satisfies. I can give you that for which you were made. I can make you fruitful where once you were barren. I can give you identity, meaning, purpose where once you were lost. I can bring you into the relationship with God you were made for. I can bring life to that which was dead in your life. When we seek what only God can provide in created things, they may satisfy us for a bit, but they won't satisfy us for long. They don't renew us as people. They don't redeem us from mistakes and failures. And in the heat of the day, in the heat of illness or bereavement or unemployment or rejection or whatever it may be that, that is hot, if you like, to us, that brings drought, in the heat of life, Created things shrivel. And if they are the source of our life, then we can shrivel with them and be left feeling dry and thirsty. But not with me, Jesus says. I give you living water. It doesn't dry up in the heat of the day. You'll never be thirsty again. What exactly is this living water that Jesus talks about? Well, we discover in a couple of chapters' time in John's Gospel that Jesus, in fact, is referring to his Spirit. So a couple of uh, chapters later, the offer that Jesus makes here privately to the woman, he makes publicly to a big crowd, and he says this, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this, he meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. The living water is the Spirit of God. It is the Spirit of Jesus living within us. We were made uh, by God, and we were made for God. And the promise of living water is nothing less than the promise of the presence of the living God within us. The Holy Spirit opens our eyes to God's presence within, opens our ears to his promises, opens our minds to his purposes for us, opens our lives to his power available to us. In short, the Holy Spirit connects our hearts and our minds to everything that Jesus is and everything that he is for us and who we are in him. And as we drink that in, as we drink in who Jesus is and what he's done for us and who we are in him, we blossom, we flourish in fruitfulness, we, we grow new fruit in our lives. 
What kind of fruit? Well, the New Testament has all kinds of examples of the kind of fruit that the living water uh, brings forth. Uh, St. Paul, writing to the church in Galatia, has a little list of some of the fruit that the Spirit brings, and they'll be familiar to some of you, I'm sure. The fruit of the Spirit, says Paul, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These aren't character um, qualities that we sort of pursue on our own and we seek to lay before God as a sign of our goodness. And if we live like this, God, please will you accept us? No, these are the fruits that come from being accepted by God, by being filled with his living water. These are the fruits that, that blossom and swell as we drink in that living water. And the question then becomes, well, how does this living water, how does Christ in us by his Spirit produce this kind of fruit? We'll be thinking a little bit more about that on Wednesday night. As uh, James said, we meet again centrally, and uh, we're going to be thinking a little bit about how the gospel produces this kind of fruit. But let's take one example this morning. Let's take an example that I think is particularly pertinent for Mother's Day, uh, which is the example of patience. Because uh, as any uh, parent will tell you, or anyone who's involved with young people, patience is certainly a virtue. Now the question is, why do we sometimes find ourselves impatient with children, or indeed with one another? Why do we find ourselves impatient? There are lots of reasons why we might find ourselves impatient. Let me give you some examples. We might be impatient with somebody because actually, fundamentally, we don't respect them as a person. Okay? If you don't respect somebody as a person, you're going to be impatient with them. We might be uh, impatient with somebody because actually we have a lack of empathy towards them. And that is because fundamentally we're thinking, you know what, I would never do what you've done, so I'm impatient with you. Or I'd never think what you think, so I'm impatient with you. Or I'd never say what you said, etc., etc. It may be because actually we're annoyed that they're resisting our agenda or our timings. You're not embracing my agenda for you or my wisdom that I'm giving you as quickly as I think you ought to be. And you're not, you're not changing as quickly as I think you should be changing, and I resent the time I'm giving you. It's often impatience spills over into anger. Or you might be thinking, actually your lack of progress reflects badly on me, and we've tied an element of our self-worth and identity on this person making progress under my you know, advice, whatever it is, and they're not making progress, and so I think it reflects badly on me, and so I grow impatient. There's 101 things that might be driving that behavior. Now, how does the living water, that is Christ in me by his spirit, battle the thorny response of impatience and replace it with the fruit of patience? Well, let's run through those examples. The first thing the gospel does is it reminds me that the person I'm speaking to is made in the image of God and is inherently, uh, has inherent worth and has inherent dignity. The second thing the gospel teaches me is that I'm equally broken I'm equally in need of help. Now, I may not be broken in the same way this person is broken. I might not need the particular help that this person needs. I might struggle in different ways to this person, but the point is I I do struggle, and I'll need someone to be patient with me in some aspect of my life. And immediately, see, Jesus puts us on a level footing. He says, you're all broken. You all need grace in different ways. And so immediately that grows an empathy for this person. Immediately it grows a humility before this person, or it should do. Thirdly, Jesus reminds me that part of my brokenness is thinking that the world should revolve around me and my agenda for you and my timings for you. 
And actually, I'm reminded that this person is a person, not a project. And that the journey of our ongoing relationship is as important, if not more important, than the particular outcome I'm working towards. And actually, God's agenda for me in this relationship may be precisely to learn some patience and to have some of my faulty thinking corrected. Fourthly, it reminds me, the gospel reminds me that I'm accepted by God. I'm secure in him unconditionally. And therefore, regardless of the progress that this person makes, it doesn't reflect on me. I don't, my, my identity and my image and my self-worth isn't damaged, therefore, by the lack of progress this, make, this person's making. I can be as patient as I like. And so on and so forth. One example of many we could give, how the gospel brings fruitfulness. And the question, therefore, is how do we get this living water? And much more briefly as I close, the second thing that strikes me about Jesus from this passage is not only is he the source of living water, but secondly, he seeks the thirsty. Jesus seeks the thirsty. There's a lovely um, little bit of a psalm, which is the songs, the, the, the poems of the Old Testament. And the psalmist says this, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Where can I go and meet with God? It's a great question, isn't it? Where can I go and meet with God? And the good news of Christianity, of course, that we celebrate at Christmas time, is that God comes to us. God comes to us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he comes to us with the offer of living water. He draws near to us as he drew near to that woman of Samaria with the offer of living water. He draws near to any and to all. It's interesting, Jesus' engagement with this woman stuns her, and actually if you read on to verse 27, it stuns his disciples. They can't believe that Jesus is talking to and engaging with this kind of a woman. And yet throughout the Gospels, you find that Jesus does exactly that. He draws near to anyone and everyone. He, he makes a beeline for those who are thirsty, for those who find themselves excluded, for those who find themselves to be outcasts, the unwanted, the unlovely. He engages with anyone and everyone who is needy, who is thirsty. And he says to them, as he says to us, come to me, come to me and drink. Jesus doesn't just have what our souls need. He is what our souls need. They were made by Jesus. They were made for Jesus. The ache in our hearts that we sometimes feel is at root an ache for the Lord Jesus Christ. Our cells were made for water, but our very selves were made for relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And we connect to him by faith. Faith is the way we open ourselves up to him. Faith is the way he pours his living water, the Holy Spirit, into us. And that is how we blossom into the people of God that we were originally created to be. It may be this morning that you find yourself here and feeling quite thirsty. It may be that you've uh, never heard this particular invitation from the Lord Jesus Christ, or you've heard it before Uh, but never given it much thought. If that is you, can I say that Easter is a wonderful time to perhaps take an hour to read John's Gospel and to ask yourself the question, could this man be the living water that I'm thirsting for? Could he be the one that could satisfy the ache in my heart? It may be that some of us have walked with Jesus for a long period of time. 
And if that's you, uh, I want to say this as I close. Remember, friends, that you are a fruit tree. Remember you're a fruit tree. It's so important as we seek to bring forth fruit to remember that in Christ we are fruit trees. God has given us the living water of Christ. There will be fruit. Let's take time to note it. And where there are still some thorns and some prickles in our character, let's seek to address them in the confidence that that we are fruit trees, not thorn bushes. That God has changed us fundamentally by his spirit. That God's perspective and God's power is available and will bring fruit, will change thorns into fruit if we apply them. And of course, God calls us to do that in community. Let's talk to friends about it. Let's examine those thorns and let's seek to apply the gospel in the power of the Spirit to them. And when we're in the heat and the droughts of life, know that the living water can bring fruit even then. Indeed, we can experience perhaps in a unique way the fruit-growing power of Christ and his Spirit. And that means that we approach heat with hope. We can, we can blossom, not because we are strong, but because barren places cannot resist the life-giving, fruit-growing work of the living water of God. And that is our hope, and that is our confidence. Amen.